Uh, yesterday, my two-year-old son, Kanan, uh, asked me to help him put on the, the mask, the costume mask of the superhero Flash. And uh, friends, as soon as I put the Flash mask on Kanan, what did he do? He started bolting around the house, running as, as fast as he could. Uh, for a moment, Kanan was the Flash. Um, the comic Jerry Seinfeld has a hilarious bit about the inflation of the male ego. Uh, he says that, that men kind of think of themselves as, as low-level superheroes of their own world. Uh, Seinfeld riffs that when men are grown up and they're, they're thinking about Batman and, and Superman and Spider-Man, uh, those are not fantasies. Those are options, he says. Uh, Seinfeld says this is the deep inner truth of the male mind. Well, friends, if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, apart from God's grace and the gospel, apart from the accompanying humility that the gospel brings, all of us want to be the hero of our own story. All of us want the glory to be made much of, to be catered to, to be thought of as as beautiful or skillful or influential, to achieve, to conquer, to get what we want when we want it. But along comes a text of Scripture like Psalm 72, and thankfully it functions like a grace-edged dagger that pierces our self-absorbed hearts. Psalm 72 says things like, May he have dominion from sea to sea. May all kings fall before him. All nations serve him. Long may he live. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Friends, this psalm that we're going to look at this morning beckons us to bend our hearts away from self-exaltation and the building of our own little kingdoms to ache for and long for and pray for the fame and global rule of our great King Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, it's on page 485 if you need a help. To get there, uh, 485 in the, in the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, this morning we're continuing this, this eight-part series in the Psalms, these songs of the King. Uh, last week we looked at the last book in book, or last Psalm, excuse me, in book one of the Psalms, Psalm 41. And this morning we're looking at the last Psalm in book two, Psalm 72. Uh, friends, so much of the content of books one and two of the Psalter tell the story of David's reign through the lens of David's sufferings as king and how they form a pattern that the Messiah King fulfills. And now as we reach the end of book two, we we get the impression by the way that the Psalms are arranged that that this part of the story is ending, that that David's reign is done. Uh, Perhaps the most obvious clue that book two closes the reign of David is there in verse 20. If you look at it, verse 20 says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, This verse is almost certainly written by the final editor of the Psalms. Uh, Even though other Psalms of David do appear in in books 3 to 5, none of them, friends, are tied to a specific historical event in David's life, like so many of the Psalms in books 1 and 2 are. So it kind of creates the impression that in books 1 and 2, we've kind of tracked with the life and the ascension and the reign of King David. And then as we enter upon book 3, we're transitioning to the king kings in David's line. And I think that's kind of obvious, isn't it, by the superscription above Psalm 72 of Solomon. This psalm is either written by Solomon or it's a psalm written 
by David for Solomon. The Hebrew that's translated of can really give either option. Friends, if I, as I've studied this psalm this week, I've kind of flipped back and forth uh, in my opinion by whether this psalm is written by David for Solomon or written by Solomon for his royal son. Uh, right now, I lean toward thinking that David wrote Psalm 72 as a coronation song for his royal son, Solomon, and ultimately for the royal son who would occupy his throne forever, whose glory and reign surpasses all other royal sons, our King, the Lord Jesus. Friends, let's read Psalm 72. And when we get to verse 19, uh, I would like all of us to respond corporately there with the loud amen and amen, okay? It'll be our corporate so be it to the truth of this psalm. So be ready for that corporate response, amen and amen, at the end of the psalm. Let's read together. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his, whole, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea, I think, from Psalm 72. I trust it'll be the main idea of the sermon today. Here's the main idea. Our hearts should ache for Jesus' reign to be known and His fame to be glorified across all the earth. Our hearts should ache. It, they should long, they should yearn for Jesus' rule, His reign. Not just to, to be there, but to be known and experienced and his, his fame to be glorified across all the earth. Friends, what does your heart ache for this morning? What consumes your soul's passion? If we could kind of push record on the deepest longing of your heart, what would the playback sound like? Well, Psalm 72, friend, is, I think is meant to move us. 
It's meant to stir something kind of deep within us, a yearning desire for the glory and dominion of King Jesus. But how exactly, how exactly should this desire come out, uh, you know, kind of flow out of our hearts into our voice and into our actions? Well, let me give you three ways this morning. Here's the outline. Number one, we should pray for the king's righteous rule. We see that in verses 1 to 7. Pray for the king's righteous rule. Number two, we should long for the king's boundless realm. See that in verses 8 to 14. Long for the king's boundless realm. Number three, yearn for the king's endless reign. See that in verses 15 to 20. Pray for the king's righteous rule. Long for the king's boundless realm. Yearn for the king's endless reign. Friends, I pray that today God's word might ignite within us a desire that Jesus' reign be known and his fame be glorified among us and among all the peoples of the earth. Number one, pray for the king's righteous rule. What is the, the, the first prayer request of this king, whether it's David or Solomon, for the future king, the royal son who will sit on the throne? Well, it's that this, this king would be a just king, a righteous ruler. Look at verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with, with justice. You know, as we learned in Psalm 1, the king of Israel was to, to fill his heart and his mind with God's word and then let it kind of flow out into his actions as king. He was to represent God's rule faithfully to the people. And how would that rule look? How would this, his kingship look when the rubber meets the road as he meditates on the word? Well, the king would reflect God's justice and his judgments and his righteousness and his decisions. That's, that's why the psalmist prays that God would endow the royal son with justice and righteousness. Now, now what is justice? What is righteousness? Well, justice, friends, is impartial, fair judgment. It's making judgments about situations and people and events that reflect what is true and right and good according to God's standard, His truth. God's righteousness refers to His upright character and the way His, his standards of right and wrong are upheld and enforced in the world. Friends, the only type of justice that exists here on earth is God's justice. Justice that reflects His character and adheres to His Word. It's a word, I think, for even our current cultural moment, isn't it? Friends, injustice and unrighteousness are as old as the Garden of Eden. Sin warps our souls inward so that we, what, what do we do? We selfishly lift up ourselves over others at the expense of others. The strong over the weak, right? The rich over the poor. The advantaged over the disadvantaged, right? The, the haves over the have-nots. One skin color over another. Friends, this this type of injustice is ancient. It's the natural fruit of pride and self-love. So the psalmist prays in verse 4, May he, the king, defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. You might ask, well, is the psalmist referring to the materially poor or the spiritually poor here? Well, yes, exactly, right? That's, it's both. And in fact, material and physical poverty in the, in the Scripture often symbolizes kind of a stand-in for spiritual poverty. Physical and material neediness pictures the greatest neediness that all humanity has, the bankruptcy of our souls and our need for God. 
Notice that the king's rule isn't exercised most evidently on behalf of the rich and powerful and influential, right? From, the, from those, it's not exercised primarily over those from whom he can gain something. No, his, his reign, the king's reign, is exercised toward those from whom he stands to gain nothing. The righteous and just king sees the plight of the poor, and he steps in, as it were, into the path of the oncoming threat against them, and he defends them from it. That's what the king does. He doesn't yawn when he sees the downtrodden and the oppressed. No, this righteous king rises from his throne and he crushes and puts down the oppressor. He executes justice on the poor's behalf. He does what's right by them, even when others will not. You know, friends, these verses help us understand what good government looks like, doesn't it? Right? And more broadly, what good leadership looks like. Good government is concerned for the justice of all its citizens, that all have equal access to the benefits of just laws. What's more, godly leaders, what do godly leaders do? Godly leaders don't utilize their authority for their own selfish ends. They don't use, use the people to kind of pad their own coffers or, or they certainly don't merely pander to the poor to promote their own power. They serve for the good of all who follow them. They have a heart for justice. Friends, this is a key reason I think we ought to pray for our government leaders and one reason we do here weekly at Redeeming Grace Church. We seek the common good of our society and our neighbors And we know, don't we, that our neighbors and our society will suffer if our leaders are corrupt and unjust. And so we pray for just and good and righteous leaders. Friends, this this principle holds true for all in authority, for all in authority, whether it's the president or a pastor or a parent, whether it's teachers or office managers or warehouse bosses. We should all prayerfully seek to reflect God's righteousness and our decision-making in leadership. We should work to bring out about just ends for those underneath our influence. Friends, look at what blessings flow downhill when the king of Israel rules justly. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Friends, when, when a king rules righteously, it's like the land itself will bear blessing for the people. They will enjoy the blessings of keeping God's covenant as they follow the lead of their king. That word prosperity in verse 3 is actually the Hebrew word shalom. Maybe you know that word. It's the same word translated peace in verse 7. It's a word that indicates the blessing of wholeness and flourishing and wellness that will permeate a society ruled by a righteous king. It's the opposite, isn't it, of the chaos and havoc and strife that's the the kind of grow out of the root of sin and selfishness. Friends, shalom causes the people to rejoice and to be glad as they live in peace with God and peace with with each other. Shalom is what God created humanity to enjoy in the beginning and what He will restore in the end. No wonder the psalmist asks that the king's reign and the benefits of his justice last forever. Look at verse 5. May they fear you, may your people, including the poor, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Man, you talk about an elevated request. Wow. You know, is this just the psalmist waxing poetic in his desire for the king to rule forever? 
Well, friends, certainly this is poetic. It's poetry, but it is not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration, is it? Remember, what is, what is the psalmist writing kind of based on? The psalmist writes through the lens of God's promise up to that point, his promises up to that point in the story of redemption. And what he does is kind of weave into his understanding of God's promises and theological ideas, his hopes and his prayer requests for this coming king. And that that he will be uh, a good and just leader, that his reign will last forever. And I think this will become obvious as we move through the psalm. So So what's the psalmist doing here? Well, he's reflecting on God's covenant with David, isn't he? Right? Recorded in 2 Samuel 7. If David's writing this psalm, he's reflecting in God's promise to himself that the Messiah, the Savior King of the world, would come from his line. That this Messiah would sit on David's throne forever. And now in the poetry, it's as if God promises, uh, guarantees this promise by attaching it to the created order. The king's reign would, would last as long as the sun and moon do. In other words, friends, as long as the earth is around, so will the king reign. As long as history endures, the king's rule will too. You know, whatever you believe about the age of the earth, scientists, astronomers estimate that the sun is about halfway through its lifespan and has about 5 billion years to go. Friends, who do you think will be the world's superpower in 5 billion years? Who will be the president of the United States in five billion years? Will there be a United States in five billion years? Will we care if Republicans or Democrats hold the political power in five billion years? According to the truth of Psalm 72, in five billion years, King Jesus will still be on the throne. His reign will endure. Look at how the psalmist pictures this just and enduring reign of the king. As long as he's on the throne, the people flourish, right? Verse 6, may he be like the rain that, that falls on the mown grass, like showers that, that water the earth. Friend, it's this, this vivid image of the goodness of the king and the growth and flourishing of the people. As the rain falls, the grass is strengthened and then it's tended to, it's mown so that it might further flourish. I know this is kind of a foreign concept, grass, right, <laughs> that grows. Uh, we're here in the desert. We don't see a lot of that, but, but use your imagination, right? The rain falls, the grass grows. This is how it works. This is the, what the reign of the king is like. It's a nourishing, life-giving, peace-filled, eternal reign. As the king rules in righteousness, verse 7 says, his people flourish and peace abounds until the moon is no more. Friends, who doesn't want a king like this? When you look at the brokenness of the world, when you see this, this society, this, this, our culture and the nation shot through by the ravages of sin and injustice, friends, this is the king we need. We need the type of king whose idea of justice isn't a temporary band-aid like a government program to fix the societal elements of the world. We need a ruler who won't just throw money at something and think, that it fixes the problem. No, we need a king whose reign crushes the actual evil and whose justice uproots the actual sin. We need this king who who rights every wrong and who brings everlasting shalom to this earth. This king who flawlessly embodies God's justice and righteousness. 
This is the type of king we need. And praise God, this is the type of king he has promised. Friends, the New Testament does not explicitly quote Psalm 72, but Psalm 72's themes reverberate elsewhere in the words of the prophets and even in passages that are explicitly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if if we had the time this morning, we could look at Isaiah chapter 2, for instance, where Isaiah prophesies that, that the Messiah is going to judge between the nations. He's going to end all wars. And so thorough will be his peace that the, the warring nations will beat their swords into plowshares, right? Their spears into pruning hooks. We could look at Isaiah 9, that great classic Christmas text, right? Where the child who is born and the son who is given bears the government of peace on his shoulders. He establishes it with justice and with righteousness. Well, we could read again Isaiah 11 that Scott read earlier, where verse 4 reflects Psalm 72 so well. He, this, this coming one, shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In that passage that we read earlier, Isaiah goes on to say that that so thorough will be this king's reign that even the natural order is going to be restored back to the way it was at the beginning, right? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Violence ends. Suffering ends. Death ends dies. Justice and peace reign. Friend, Psalm 72 so obviously cries out for the full realization of the reign of the Messiah that we know exactly who it's talking about. We know it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is this King full of justice and righteousness and mercy. And yet, friends, I just want to point out this morning that that Jesus fulfills Psalm 72 in kind of a surprising way, doesn't he? In his first coming, he did not come to exact God's justice, did he? But to display God's justice and mercy. Here's the twist. If Jesus in his first coming exacted God's justice in dealing with the proud and the abusers and the oppressors and the liars and the drug addicts and the cheats and the backbiters and the sexually immoral, Friends, who would have been left standing after justice was meted out? No one. The human project would have been over because every human who has ever lived has committed these injustices. When we read a passage like Psalm 72, friends, the the tendency, I think, in the kind of the natural human tendency is to to put ourselves in the victim category, right? To assume that we're the ones who who are among the Lord's poor. We're by nature on His side as the ones who, who need justice and vindication. But here's the reality. Not only has every one of us been wronged at some point in our life, every one of us are also among those who have wronged and who have taken advantage of others. We are among the unjust and unrighteous by nature. None of us have kept God's law perfectly nor loved neighbor consistently. In fact, that kind of undersells the reality, doesn't it? We have egregiously, horrifically sinned against God and others. Our words and our actions and our thoughts condemn us outright. Friend, the sword of the king's justice is only comforting if there is a way to be shielded from it when it falls. 
The sword of the king's justice is only comforting if there's a way to be shielded from it when it falls. If you're here and not a Christian this morning, you know what? I think you know just innately that things out there are not as they ought to be. Things are, are not as they ought to be. You see and you feel the injustices of this world. But friends, if you're honest, I think you also know that things are not right in here. Whether or not you have the categories for it, you know that you are far from what you ought to be. The reality is that we have all failed to love God as we ought. We, we make and manufacture false gods, money, power, pleasure, sex, comfort, a pill, pride, beauty, achievement, human reason, success, the list goes on. This idolatry, friends, has offended a holy God and we deserve His swift justice. We deserve eternal judgment because of it. But here's the beautiful truth hinted at in Psalm 72 that it's fully explained in the New Testament. Because in Jesus, we see this, this perfect blend not only of God's justice, but of His, of His mercy. This mercy and justice of our King wasn't even primarily reflected in the way that he lived in his love and his, his helping and healing hand of the weak and the poor. It was especially shown in the way that he died. Although Jesus himself had never sinned, never once miscarried justice, he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. He came in love to take what we sinners deserve. Friends, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus bore God's justice, his, his righteous wrath. He took that just penalty that our sin had earned. Why? Why? What would compel the Son of God to do this? It was love. It was so that God might show himself both just in punishing our sin fairly and the merciful justifier in judging Jesus, his Son, instead of us. By his death and resurrection, Jesus secured the forgiveness of those who will reach out to him by faith. Oh, friend, do you want to be shielded from the sword of justice when it falls? Well, the only way is through faith in the King who bore God's justice for all who will trust in Him. It's the righteousness of God, as Romans said, the righteousness of God revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. So, friend, you're here today. Let me, let me, just, let me just encourage you to categorize yourself correctly. Don't assume that you'll benefit from God's justice when your sins are still undealt with. Rather, look at the beautiful truth of this psalm. Look at why verses 12 to 14 say that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by all the nations of the world. Look at verses 12 to 14. Why does Jesus deserve this, this type of, of praise and adoration? It's because of His compassion and His justice, His mercy and His pity. But it's only for those who understand their need. Look at verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is the, their blood in his sight. Friends, why would you not want to embrace such a king? His people are not pawns in some cosmic game that he's playing. No, he loves them. Their blood is precious to him so much that he shed his own blood so that they might live. You know, friends, even as we're complicit in the sins of injustice, 
All of us are also simultaneously oppressed by great enemies that we could never deliver ourselves from on our own. The penalty of death and the stranglehold of sin through the power of Satan grasp every one of us. But at the cross, Jesus conquered our enemies too. He didn't just bear our justice. He conquered our enemies. He didn't just absorb God's wrath to show us mercy. He conquered death by his resurrected life for all who are united to him by faith. He stripped Satan of the only power that he had over us. He wiped our guilty record clean if we trust in him so that our enemy has nothing on us any longer. But friends, make no mistake. This sword of justice that I've referenced a few times, even though it sleeps now for the forgiven, it will awake one day for those who are not. When Jesus returns again, it will be to exact God's justice against the wicked. God's sword of justice will be unsheathed, and in fact, it will be in King Jesus' hand. On that day, the scales that tip so often the wicked's way and injustice will be righted fully. Perfect justice will pervade the eternal rule of King Jesus. He will bring his eternal shalom to this broken and chaotic world. No more miscarriage of justice. No more not getting a fair shake. No more extorters. No more unjust judges. No more dirty politicians. No more corrupt kings. The king will reign in righteousness. And the righteous will flourish and peace will abound. So friends, how do, how do we as Christians put Psalm 72, 1 to 7 in our heart and our voice? How do we sing this psalm? Well, friends, first of all, I think we pray that this day would come, right? We echo the words of John at the end of Revelation. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do this. Come back and vindicate your name and bring that, that day of eternal shalom. But friends, we also put this psalm into our heart and voice by praying that even now God's kingdom might come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We embody Psalm 72 every time the spirit of our king causes us to deny ourselves, for instance, and love others for their good. Right? We, we embody this psalm as we put justice and mercy on display by our love for neighbor, by the way that we care for our fellow members of our church. We put Psalm 72, 1-7 in our mouths every time that we gather on the Lord's Day. Under, under the authority of our king, and we, we submit ourselves, we bow our knee to his word. Friends, friends, pray for the king's righteous rule. Number two, number two, long for the king's boundless realm. Every king has a realm, right? Every king has a realm that he rules over. And the king's realm has borders that define the limits of the king's authority. And what the psalmist friends here indicates that the borders of the king's realm, this Messiah king's realm, they're as wide as the earth. Look at verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, at this point, your Bible spidey sense should be probably going off, okay? That's a Marvel reference if you didn't catch it, okay? Because where do we know this idea of dominion over the earth from? Where have we seen that idea in the Bible? That's right, Genesis 1. 
Right at the beginning, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Friends, God created Adam to rule the earth for him. The very first king in God's kingdom was not King Saul. It was King Adam who ruled jointly with Queen Eve. They were to image God just like a, a conquering king would, would kind of set a statue of himself or an image of himself in a land that he had conquered. He was saying, this is where the king rules, right? This is the domain of the king's reign. So what we see in Genesis is just that. And it was not a localized rule, was it? No, God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, friends, what Adam and Eve were to do were to procreate and fill the earth with other image bearers, right? They were ex to kind of extend God's dominion out from Eden and fill the lands with his glory, just like the waters cover the sea. But what happened? What happened? Satan embodied in the snake, tempted Eve, who sinned and tempted Adam, and humanity's reign over the earth went belly up. In the fall, Adam forfeited God's rule in his attempt to usurp God's throne, and the world has never been the same. So do you see what the psalmist is saying? May this Messiah King rule like Adam should have. May his dominion spread from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river here is probably the Euphrates, right? It's that river that, that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. It was at the border of the promised land that Israel inhabited. I think what the psalmist is asking for is for the promised land to become like Eden and extend across the whole earth. He's asking for God's righteous king to rule God's people in God's place. His kingdom spread from shore to shore. Friends, if the Messiah reclaims the rule over the earth that Adam lost, this can only mean that he's going to bring about God's purposes for the world that he intended right at the beginning. He's going to bring God's salvation. And if the boundaries of the king's realm are as wide as the earth, that means his reign is universal, doesn't it? There are no rival forces, right? There are no kings to which the Messiah bows. Rather, he's the one, he's the one worthy of the bowed knee and allegiance of the earth's kings. Friends, this, this absolute universal rule is what the psalmist longs for. Here in verse 9, May desert tribes bow before him. May his enemies lick the dust. Now, that sounds like an awful lot like God's judgment over the sinister snake in Genesis 3, right? That dust would be his food. So the king is going to conquer evil. Verse 10, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. And all nations serve him. The psalmist now expands out from the Bedouin desert tribes of the Middle East to the royal son receiving tribute from the kings of, of Tarshish at the western edge of the known world. And from, from the kings of Sheba in Arabia to the east and Seba in the horn of Africa in the far south, they'll also come. Again, the king's reign will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. You know, friends, we see a partial fulfillment of this in Solomon's reign, don't we? In 1 Kings 10, remember that? Who comes and offers her gifts to Solomon? The queen of Sheba. 
That same chapter says that, tar- that ships from Tarshish would come every three years and give lavish gifts to Solomon. But friends, as, as prosperous as Solomon's reign was, the glory of his rule had a shelf life. Solomon, his heart turned away from the Lord and against his people. After 40 years, seems like a long reign, but in light of eternity, a blip on the radar. After 40 years, Solomon's reign ended. It was not the enduring or global reign promised to this king. Friends, turn over to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, that's on page 796. I want you to see something. This is like 500 plus years after Psalm 72 is written, by the way. The prophet Zechariah foretells of the coming Messiah. You, you probably know, whether you realize it or not, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, right? Mounted on the, the colt, a foal of a donkey. So remember how Jesus fulfills this prophecy in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem during the week of his death. But perhaps what you don't know so well is Zechariah's words in the next verse. He writes that the Messiah will speak peace to the nations and then look at the end of verse 10. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You say, John, what's the big deal? The big deal is that 500 years after Psalm 72 was written, God's people still understood it to be talking about the coming Messiah. Even in just right after the darkness of exile, when David's throne sat vacant, Zechariah quotes Psalm 72. And he says this coming king is going to have a global dominion. He's going to be the king for everyone, everywhere. And friends, I know your head might be kind of spinning at this point. You're like, man, in the span of four verses, you're referring to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 and 1 Kings 10. Now Zechariah 9. Friends, I get it. I get it. But what I'm trying to help us understand is this jaw-dropping unity of the Bible, number one. It spans thousands of years, and yet it's unified in its message. Number two, I want you to see the beautiful king our Bible shows and portrays. The psalmist in Psalm 72 picks up the ancient hopes of God's people, and he sings of the, the global reign of the king. And then the prophets add their voice to the psalmist's voice and foretell with him of the coming day. So friends, when we get to the New Testament, we really shouldn't be surprised that in his earliest days, magi, rulers from the Orient, traveled from afar and laid their gifts before a tiny little boy named Jesus, whom they understood to be this great king. The king had arrived and Psalm 72 had begun to be fulfilled. The kings came and laid their gifts down. The truth is that during Jesus' adult life and ministry, the kings of the earth did not act like that for the most part. They did not stream to Jerusalem to offer Jesus gifts. They did not crown him king. In fact, they acted more like the kings of Psalm 2, who conspired together to kill him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and instead mocked his kingship. But friends, little did they know That when they lifted him up on the cross, they were raising up the Messiah to sit on his eternal throne. On the third day, the tomb cracked open and the triumphant king walked out victorious. 
Now turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, it's on page 1041. John writes at the end of the age that when the Messiah's reign is consummated in the New Jerusalem, guess what's going to happen? Revelation 21, look at verse 22. John writes of this New Jerusalem, And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Friends, may all kings fall down before Him, all nations serve Him, every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we see in this coming day. So friends, how do we put Psalm 72, 8 to 10 in our heart and in our voice? How do we kind of put on the clothes of this psalm, right? We long for the king's rule to extend from sea to sea. When we see Jesus dishonored among the nations, we long for him to be vindicated. We yearn for him to be honored and worshiped as he deserves among the nations. Friends, yes, we do this by having a a view of the end when he comes back visibly and publicly. But friends, our view of the end and that that kind of end time global dominion of Jesus, it ought to do something in our hearts right now. We should long for the nations and peoples of the world to bring their gifts to him now. To bow their hearts and lives in homage and allegiance, having trusted in him for salvation. In other words, friends, Psalm 72 it should fuel missions and evangelistic fervor in our hearts. We have to seek to become a church that loves to go and to send and to mobilize and to give for gospel work around the world. Because why? Because the aching passion of our hearts reflects the psalmist. We want Jesus to be prized and praised among all the peoples of the world for their eternal joy. Friends, I pray that some of you might be so enthralled by this view of King Jesus and his glory and his worthiness to rule the nations that you might go and you might make him known across the lands with your life, that you would spend your life and be spent in the gospel for the advance of Christ's kingdom in another place, in another culture, in another language. Friends, the Lord Jesus is beyond worthy of that type of investment of your life. But for the rest of us, Our friends, we ought to work for the joy of all peoples by our prayer and by our giving, by our activity in the local church. We ought to work to make Christ known here. We ought to invest our time and energy and resources here in this church so that the boundaries of Christ's kingdom extend and expand from this place so that his reign in the hearts and lives of, of his people through the church advance. Christ's gospel and his kingdom. Friends, we need to long for Christ's boundless realm. Number three, yearn for the king's endless reign. Yearn for the king's endless reign. Verses 15 to 19, they're kind of like the grand finale, honestly, at the end of, the, of a messianic fireworks show, right? Everything he's been saying now culminates in an explosion of praise. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. In other words, even in the most unlikely spot for wheat to grow, may it grow there on the tops of the mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Friends, this sounds like the crowning of a king, doesn't it? Sounds like the coronation ceremony. If you watched uh, Netflix, The Crown, maybe you remember that scene from The Crown where uh, Queen Elizabeth II was indeed crowned. The Archbishop of Canterbury crowned her. The congregation in Westminster Abbey then cried out, God save the Queen, right? Long live Queen Elizabeth. May the Queen live forever. And it seems like she might, right? <laughs> Seventy years later, she's still on the throne. Friends, if we internalize Psalm 72 and then actualize it in our lives, you know what we'll want? We'll want the expansion of the glory and rule of King Jesus, just like the British people cry out for their monarch. We'll want him to look great. We'll want him to have the platform. We'll want him to get the gold, not us. We'll believe that He's not only worthy of the treasures of Sheba, He's worthy of our treasures, of our time, of our talents. We'll not hoard these things, but we'll rather lay them down before the feet of the only one worthy of them. Friends, we'll order our lives not around what brings us the most comfort. We'll order our lives about, around what brings Jesus most glory. Friends, I would be remiss if I didn't point out how massively important verse 17 is in understanding the theology of the Old Testament and really the entire Bible. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. It sounds like a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Psalm 41, blessed is the man. Friends, what we see here at the end of Psalm 72 is the psalmist kind of fusing together God's covenants with his people for us to see. He shows us how, we're, how to understand God's promises to his people, okay? So do you remember from our Genesis series, and I know that was a, a ways back, not all of you were here, but when we went through Genesis, how did God give humanity a new start after Adam's fall? We did so through Noah, and then he did so through Abraham. He chose Abraham to carry his promises forward. And what did he promise Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That sounds a lot like Psalm 72, doesn't it? It's a promise of royalty coming from Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God promised global salvation, blessing for the peoples through Abraham's future descendant. Fast forward a thousand years to God's promise with David that we've already talked about in 2 Samuel 7. What does God promise David? Well, 2 Samuel 7, 9 makes the same promise to David as he did to Abraham. I will make of you a great name. Again, it's the royal promise. And then he repeats it with more specifics in verse 12. David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. 
He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Friends, friends, do you see why the psalmist is so confident that the Messiah will have a boundless realm and an endless reign? Because he understands God's Abrahamic promise of blessing for the nations to be fulfilled by the Davidic king, the Messiah. And if we work back to what we learned earlier about the king reestablishing Adam's dominion, oh, friends, we understand that the Messiah, who is the offspring of woman, crushed the serpent's head, he's going to bring humanity back to what it was created to be in the beginning, to worship and enjoy our God in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The king of which the psalmist has been singing is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Abraham. He's the true and better David. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, surely by now it's obvious that this human king that the psalmist has been singing about is in fact our eternal God who took on flesh to save us. Friends, only God is worthy of global dominion, and only He will reign forever. This is our King. He is the Son of God incarnate. Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, once preached from this text, Psalm 72, and he said this, as only Spurgeon could, We see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, and the last remnants of the Ottomans. Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. Long may he live. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Friends, so often when we come to a text like this, the best application is really not to do anything, is it? The best application is just to step back and admire and to worship and to rejoice in this king. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would indeed echo the words of this psalm in our hearts and our lives and our voices this morning. Oh, Lord, our, our greatest desire is for you to reign over us, that you would be our king and our God, that we would make known your fame and your glory to others by the way that we live, with the proclamation of our lives, with our, the way that we value our resources. Oh, Father, we know that by nature we're so often consumed with self about building our little kingdoms rather than to see the expansion of yours. Well, Father, I pray that you might, by your Spirit, turn our eyes outward, bend our hearts outward from ourselves to prize and to praise our great King, our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.